you so much. Oh, what an honor it is to be with you. And uh, like Jason said, thank you so much for your hospitality. We have experienced a remarkable welcome while we've been here. People have taken us out for meals. People have had them in their homes. People have, on one occasion, turned up at our house with a mattress. Um, people have done extraordinary things to, to help us and to be kind and include us. And we are so very grateful. Um, if you have a Bible with you, would you like to turn to Acts chapter 3? Acts chapter 3. We're in this wonderful series on the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is obviously the story of the explosive growth and huge challenges faced by the early church. And beginning with the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection and running right through until the gospel reaches Rome at the end. And it's really the the story of the progress of the gospels, like a, a pebble being dropped into a pond and then spreading out around the world. And we're still quite early in that story at the moment in Acts chapter 3. But what happens today, it's important to see what comes either side. Uh, we've only, The church has only just started. The, the, the very first Christian sermon is preached in Acts chapter 2. For the first time, really, people who were not part of Jesus' original group have become converted, filled with the Spirit, and joined the church. That's just happened. And then in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 4... As a result of the story we're going to read now, we find the church faces intense persecution for the first time, but it also grows to 5,000 people. And so we're going to see this story actually prove something of a hinge between the churches at the moment. Until now, last week, we would have seen the churches, so far, all success. With lots of people being added, no problems. What we're going to see is because of the healing and the sermon that come in this chapter, the church will for the first time face significant persecution and opposition, but it will also grow by the grace of God to 5,000 people. And it, this story we're going to read may be familiar to many of us. It probably is. If we know our Bibles well, we'll have read this story about the healing of the lame man and the sermon. But I think there are two big surprises in this story, which I hope will help us as we wrestle with the story again and think it through two very surprising things that you might not see if you're looking through it and kind of oh i'm familiar i know that story but i think there's a couple of big surprises here for us uh, which can instruct us as we follow jesus so let's read acts chapter 3 beginning at verse 1 now peter and john were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, 
Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be delivered to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. And all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of God. I find this a surprising chapter. I find it a surprising sermon in particular. Like in my country, we have a a habit of, a lot of churches are what we call seeker-friendly churches. So what you have to do is you make the church as easy as possible for new people to come in. And there's a lot that's good about that. But sometimes it can turn into, what you do is you tell people, really, what they want to know. How do you have a good life? And then you send them on their way with a nice encouragement. And Peter instead says, oh, by the way, you killed Jesus. He's the author of life. You killed him. You wanted a murderer instead. Pontius Pilate was going to let him go. And you killed him. You denied him. It's like hostile, pretty fiery stuff. It's a surprising way of doing evangelism, considering it's only the second Christian sermon in history. So it's a strange, in some ways a surprising story. And there's a number of little surprises in this passage. But for me, there are two big ones that I think can really help us as we follow Jesus in the Christian life. And the first one, which I think is at the heart of the healing story, so the chapter's in two parts, right? The, The healing and then the sermon. But at the heart of the healing story we find the surprising power of nothing. The surprising power of having nothing. This healing happens, and the gospel message that happens afterwards, and the persecution that happens after, and the growth that happens afterwards, all happen because the apostles have nothing. That's why the story is made possible. Because this man is not asking for healing, right? We know that because we're told in the story in verse 3, he asked to receive alms, as in money. Right? He, verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Right? So he, this man is just like, and there's many people, as you probably did yesterday, and we saw walk past many people yesterday who are sitting basically asking for alms or asking for money in this city. That's all this man, I said, that's all he wants. He's not looking for healing. That's not what he's asking for. 
He wants something. And Peter says, I've got nothing. He doesn't have the thing the man wants. And it's only because that he doesn't that the healing is able to take place. You see, he's not asking. He's not like the people in the Gospels who run up to Jesus and throw themselves at his feet and say, Lord, would you heal me? Or, Lord, my daughter is sick. Please come and heal. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, I want some money. Now, can you imagine how different the story would be if Peter had remembered his wallet? Yeah? This man would still be lame. There would be no sermon, no breakout of the power of God, no opposition, maybe, but also no growth of the church to 5,000. Peter's going, I didn't, oh, no, I didn't bring my wallet. Do you take Apple Pay? And the guy goes, no, I don't have a phone. It's 2,000, you know, it's 2,000 years ago. He goes, oh, no, very. John, did you bring your wallet? Did you go, oh, no, I didn't. Anyone got the handbag? Anybody? No? My, oh, fine. We better heal him then. That's kind of what's happening. It's like, well, I don't, oh, no, have you got the silver or gold? No, I don't. Well, in that case, I'll give you the only thing I do have. You see, the power in the story comes from the fact that the, the apostles didn't have what the man wanted. They said, we've got nothing. And because we've got nothing, the only thing we can give you is the miraculous power of God. We don't have anything else. If we had had something, you'd still be unable to walk. And thousands of people would still be unsaved. But because we have nothing, we have to lean into the miraculous power of the God who raises the dead. That's all we've got. You may have heard the story, I think Vinu alluded to this a couple of weeks ago in the series, but... You may have heard the story of the St. Dominic, the sort of famous traveling preaching monk in the 12th and 13th century. St. Dominic visits in the story. I don't know if it's true. It may well not be. But the story goes that St. Dominic visits the Pope in Rome. And at the time, I mean, Rome, many of us probably not been there. But because it's in Europe, I have been able to go there for a day. And it is, the Vatican City is spectacular. I mean, it is of of a level of, it is, I suppose, the... The, the Catholic equivalent of the Taj Mahal in terms of scale, the, the dome, the wonder of it, the, the sort of massive columns stretching out, the whole huge square. It is an incredible piece of architecture. It is filled with opulence and wealth and glory in, in worldly terms. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. And the story goes that St. Dominic went to the Pope in Rome and the Pope said to him, you see, no longer can St. Peter say, Silver and gold have I none. The Pope is saying, look at all of this wealth. Isn't it amazing what God has done in giving us all of this power and this wealth? And St. Dominic said, of course, back to him, yes, but nor can St. Peter say, rise up and walk. In other words, by you have exchanged your nothing for something. You have got all of this stuff, but despite having the stuff, in fact, because you have the stuff, you are no longer in a position to speak with the power of God to heal the sick. Because you have traded your nothing for something, for lots of things. Because Peter in this story has nothing at all, the only option is a miracle. That's all he's got. And you find that sometimes in life, don't you? That when you have lost, if it's only when you've lost everything that you realize all I can do is lean on the mighty power of God to break in. But otherwise, I don't. I look to the things I do have. I, in my country, it's, I'm going to look to my money and my provision and my, um, my education or whatever it might be. And I'm going to lean on those things. It's only when those things are taken away and I don't have anything and I realize how limited I am that I go from having something to having nothing that I end up with everything. So I recognize the fact that my little thing, my 
provision for the future, my hope. I mean, I'm, there's, by the way, there's nothing wrong with owning a home or having a pension or an insurance. I, I just think that what we tend to do is we put our hope in those things. And we think, it's all right, I've got something and it won't let me down. And the apostles just can't think like that. The apostles say, I don't have anything. The only thing I have is the name of Jesus who raises the dead and makes the lame to stand and walk. And there is a power to having nothing. We always want to have a something. But we need to recognize there is a huge power to naught, nil, zero, zilch, whatever you call it. There is a power to having nothing at all. I know Indians know all about this, right? You guys had zero for hundreds and hundreds of years before people in the West knew what it was. So we were very confused by counting, right? And you, meanwhile, Indians are going, this is fine. You just have a zero. Somewhere in between plus and minus. But the West didn't have that. You may know this, that we were operating for many centuries without the concept of zero. So our dating and, and counting is very confused. So what happens if you go five, four, three, two, one? What then? And all Western people are going, we don't know. Minus one, minus two, like this. So our dating, right? If you know the way you, we date back to the birth of Jesus... If you ever try and count the ancient dates, it's hilarious because we're going, Jesus was born in about minus five or minus four, minus three, minus two, minus one, one, two, three, because there's no zero. And meanwhile, people in India are going, uh, if you just have a zero, everything's much easier. And we didn't know anything about it. And my theory is that's why Indians are better at maths, because you know how to count. And it's also why Indians are better at computing than English people, because English people didn't have a naught. So we can't use binary. So we just, we just have one, 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 one. Like this. And meanwhile, you go, no, 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 it's honestly, you'll make a much better computer if you have a naught and a one. And so you guys have taken over the IT world. That's how I see it. It's because of the power of zero. Now, that's a silly way of making the point. But spiritually, there is a surprising power to having nothing at all. And you'll see it throughout Scripture. In the beginning, God created out of nothing. There's nothing here at all. He's not fashioning something like almost all other religions say. He's not fashioning something out of something that was already there. He's not multiple gods looking at sort of molding and shaping what already is. It's God speaking into the nothing and declaring everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you'll see it happening again and again in the Bible. You shuffle forward into the story of Abraham. And Abraham has two women in his life. Sarah, Hagar. Hagar is young, fertile, she can have children. Sarah is old, she's barren, she can't have children. Hagar has something. Sarah has nothing. Abraham thinks, well, I don't know, I'll go with Hagar because that's the way God's promise to give me a family will come because Hagar's got something. I'll go with the something. I know how to do that. I won't draw you a picture because there are children present. But you understand, right? He goes, I know how to do that. I can work a descendant for myself out of something. And God says, that's not what I want. I want you to find your line, your child, your offspring through the, through the nothing. I want you to find through the womb of a barren woman. Because then you will know that this hasn't been achieved through your flesh, but through my spirit. I want you to encounter the power of nothing. And then you move on through the Old Testament and you'll find it happens again and again. It happens with Moses. Lyndon was telling us at the start of the meeting, Moses standing on the banks of the Red Sea, a massive raging sea in front of him, an Egyptian army behind him, people in the middle, presumably screaming for help. Moses is leading them. They are only a few days into their flight from Egypt. And he has to, effectively, the question comes down to, does he have something or does he have nothing? 
See, if Moses had had something, there would be no miracle. Let's say Moses had had a little crack team of Mossad agents who would then go, well, don't worry, we'll get in and we'll fight the Egyptians and everything. There would have been no miracle, no deliverance through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army would not have been washed away. There would be no wilderness wanderings, no Sinai, no law, no promised land, nothing. If Moses had had something. But Moses had nothing. Exodus 14 has God speak to him and say, Moses, you stand and be silent. And you will see the deliverance that the Lord will work for you today. You don't have anything. Moses goes, okay, I will just be shh. And I will wait and I will see what the Lord will do. Because I've got nothing. I have to rely on the miracle. You'll find it again as you keep moving through the Old Testament. You'll find Joshua wanting to take Jericho. Now how would you, how would you capture a walled city that was the first fortification on your way into the land? So I better get the, not just the weapons, the swords and the spears and the shields and all the rest, but you'd probably get the bows and arrows, you'd get catapults, you'd get like Lord of the Rings, those siege towers that go up against the wall and everyone climbs over. That's how you'd take a city, right? You'd get all the weapons you can. And Joshua's going, right, which weapons should we prepare? And God says, none of them, just trumpets. What? Trumpets? Yeah, that's what you're going to do. Oh, right, so what are we going to do? Like hit them with the trumpets or throw the trumpets at them? No. Just leave it to me. Just walk around in a circle. What? Walk around in a circle. One. What about tomorrow? Oh, same thing. Walk around in a circle. What about, what about tomorrow? Same thing. Six times. Seventh day. Now walk around in circles. Seven times. And all the people on the ark, what are you doing down there? Just walking around and around in circles. I said, right now, blow the trumpets. Seriously, that's your plan. Yes, blow the trumpets. And the walls crash to the floor. And the city falls. And the land it begins to be conquered. You think, they have nothing. If they had taken it by military force, the nation of Israel, the conquest of the land would be, the world history would be totally different. But they have nothing, and so they have to rely on the God who gives them everything. And um, this is exactly what happens, of course, in the birth of Jesus. That the angel comes to a virgin, a woman with nothing, no chance at all of conceiving a child. Not even a woman who is perhaps barren, who you, you might think, oh, well, maybe you'll be fortunate. No, this is a woman who hasn't even lain with a man. And then God comes and says, and I will give you out of that nothing. You don't even have a fetus in there. But out of the nothing, I will create the son. And the son of God will come to you. And I will create a plan that will change everything. You see, it's not through people who come with, here's my thing, Lord. It's through people who come to him and go, I've got nothing. Lord, the only thing I can do is trust you. And as we've already sung in this meeting, praise God, on Good Friday, Jesus has no life in him. His heart has stopped beating completely. His brain is brain dead. There are no electrical signals. There's no pulse. There's no sign of life. And he gets laid in the tomb with nothing. Dead. In the inside, if you like, in the big round, big fat zero of the tomb. Laying in the darkness with nothing. And out of the darkness into the glorious day. He steps up and God turns nothing into everything. Right? Not because Jesus has got a little bit of life. So I'm still, you know, like those people are sort of the life force is still fading, but it's kind of still there. I'm just very, very sleepy. Oh, no, no. Dead. Nothing. Into everything. This is how God works. And like this lame man, we come to God with nothing of our own. Empty-handed. And we might be looking for a little bit of something. We say, God, God, if I could just have maybe a little bit of stuff, like some arms, a little bit more money. A little bit more education, a little bit more station in life, a little bit more family. Lord, if you could just give me this, I'd be fine. And God says, no, you won't. You don't need a little bit. 
You need to acknowledge you've got nothing at all and then I will give you everything. So there's a surprising power to nothing. And the second surprise, there's only two, right? So two, two things in this story. There are two surprises I want to draw out. There is the surprising power of nothing. And then in the sermon, there is the surprising power of rejection. Of having somebody say, I don't want you. I, I, don't, I don't need you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to deny you. Because the sermon is all about the way that God takes the rejection of Jesus and turns the surprising power of rejection into the vindication and the exaltation of Jesus in the resurrection. Peter says that the entire gospel is made possible because these people have rejected Jesus. Right? Again, it's not seeker-sensitive preaching. Verse 13, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So he's trying to show them the connection between their rejection of Jesus and the salvation for the world that God has worked through Jesus. He's making a crucial point that what, says verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has now fulfilled. God has used the rejection of Jesus to be a means of saving the world. And Peter wants them to see that, that that's the way God so frequently works in Scripture. You denied him, but God glorified him. You killed him, but God raised him. Rejection has led to glory. And there is a surprising power in Scripture to rejection. Jesus himself said it this way, quoting the psalm. It's one of the, one of, Jesus quotes it a lot. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. There is a surprising power to rejection. And that's a principle, again, that runs throughout Scripture. That God loves to use rejects. Loves to use the people that the world disregard and despise. He does it all the time. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is Leah. I love the character of Leah. She moves me. I can relate to her in many ways. Because she is the rejected sister. She's two sisters. One of them, the younger one, is beautiful. People stop in the street and stare at her. She's in the movies. She's on billboards. She is gorgeous. Men everywhere are waiting for her to reach marriageable age so they can propose to her. And Leah has been overshadowed by her little sister her whole life. Rachel is the one everybody wants. Leah, all that the author says, Rachel is lovely in form and beautiful, but Leah had weak eyes. That's all it says about her at, the point, at that point. She is dismissed. Nobody wants to know. Nobody wants Leah. In fact, the only way Leah gets married is because the person she marries thinks that they're marrying Rachel because she's wearing a veil and it's dark. And that's the only way Leah can even get married. So she's not only rejected by the family and by the community and society, she's rejected by her own husband, who she knows only married her because she thought he thought she was someone else. This is a, a, a modern picture of a, a rejected person who has been neglected and left on the shelf. You know what God does? He says, I see you, Leah. I I recognize your situation, your predicament. I see you, I hear your cry, and I am going to give you not just a son, where your sister does not yet, I'm going to give you 
the first four sons of the tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. I'm going to give you another two later in life. So you'll be able to have six boys because I know that your husband doesn't love you, but I do. I know that the society around you has rejected you, but I don't. I love using people whom the world has rejected. And I am not only going to give you sons, I'm going to give you the son, Judah, through whom the salvation through Jesus is going to come to the whole world. I'm going to, out of the line of Judah, I'm going to bring the lion of Judah, and he's going to bring salvation to countries that you haven't even heard of. So that people in Britain, and people in Mumbai, and people all around the world will come to experience the love of the God of Abraham through your great, 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 great grandson. That's what God does for rejected people. That's what God does when the world says, oh, we don't want that person. Weak eyes. Who wants her? God says, I do. I have a plan to bring glory through rejection. That's the way the gospel works. And it's what happens again in the story of Gideon. I'm the weakest in my tribe. My tribe is the weakest in Israel. I'm, no one would use me to conquer anything. Yeah, it's all right. I'm going to take you, Gideon. Okay. Yeah, obviously, all right, okay, I'll get an army of 30,000 people. No, you don't need 30,000 people. Send them all away. All right, what about this 10,000? No, 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 send them all away. What about this lot? No, get rid of them. No, just 300. All right, how are we going to beat the Midianites with 300 men? And I'm the weakest leader ever. Oh, well, it's all right. Again, get some trumpets. Yeah, some jam jars. And you'll defeat the Midianites. There is a power to using rejected people. David, I've got, Jesse says, I've got seven sons. Yeah? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Which of them do you want? Samuel goes, there's none of these guys. You got anyone else? Oh, yeah, some little kid out there. I've kind of forgotten his name, actually, but he's somewhere out there. And he comes in and becomes King David. And see, God is continually using the surprising power of rejection. Even Israel itself as a nation, tiny little nation, wrong end of the world, gets trampled by everybody's empires, gets invaded all the time, even to this very day. And God says, it's through that nation that I'm going to bring salvation to the world through Jesus Christ. You may be able to see it in your own life. You may have observed in your own life that the things that you would regard as being the most acceptable aspects of you are not necessarily the bits God uses. That what God often does is he finds the bits about yourself and your story and your personality that you think, I wish it wasn't like that. And God often uses that as the means through which he uses and blesses you and others through you. Over and over again, my power is made perfect in weakness. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He does it all the time. The surprising power of rejection. Rejected stones become cornerstones on which the whole building is built. And I find personally that analogy, the, the, the rejection of the stone into the cornerstone, I love it, but I find it very hard to grasp because in the language we're speaking, it doesn't really work like it does in Jesus' language. Because what happened, you see, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a slightly strange picture because the stone you, reject, the stone you get in your shoe is like a bit of pebble or a bit of gravel. It's tiny, it's a kind of little thing, and you would never make that the foundation of a building. The way we build buildings is we pour concrete in and we get girders and all the rest. So it's totally different from the kind of thing you trip over. So the idea of rejecting a stone, I want to get rid of that, and then it turning into the foundation of a building doesn't quite work in probably in modern culture generally, certainly not in English. So I'm trying to make the point about the connection between rejection and the foundation of a new building. I like thinking about mangoes. So very kindly... 
I'm it. Went out during the meeting and got me a mango. And uh, that's kind of a number of levels because I was going to use it for an illustration. But also because it enabled me to be standing there. I was just worshipping away. And Vinu just leans over to me and said, Mango has arrived. And then goes back to singing. I thought, it made it look like a spy movie. You know, when like a sort of sinister spy just goes, Mango has arrived. You go, oh, I've got the code. Mango has arrived. It's like some code name or something. So anyway, Mango arrived halfway through this meeting. So thank you, Amit. Um, but I like thinking about mangoes because mangoes to me prove a superb picture of the relationship between rejecting a stone and it proving the foundation for everything else. So mangoes are just, uh, by the way, thank you again, India. You have given us zero. You have given us mangoes. You have given us many, many good gifts. So we're very grateful for that. But the overriding question when you're eating a mango, Vinu is going to come out and model it for us. Uh, he's got a, a knife and a spoon. The overriding question when you're eating a mango is how do you get rid of the stone? Because mangoes are unbelievably delicious and juicy. But if you break, you bite into the stone with your teeth, your teeth will break, like that you will die of eating mango stone because they're so hard, it's like fiendish. And so in my country, there are hilarious numbers of YouTube videos about how to get the stone out of a mango. And so you get all of these sort of videos online going, well, what you need to do is you need to put in the sharp knife and you come around to this and you peel it and then you cut over and then you get a spoon. It goes over and round and over and round. And all these English people gathering around YouTube go over and round, over and round. And then you slice, 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 slice. And then you turn it inside out and it looks like a hedgehog. That's the YouTube, that's the claim, right? And you might have seen these videos and in England people watch them and go, oh, I, YouTube lies. I know YouTube is not telling the truth because when I do it, it doesn't look at all like it does in the video, but it, even the one in the video does not look like a hedgehog. Like I've seen hedgehogs and they do not look like mangoes. So I find myself very puzzled by the whole thing. But the whole point is, Vinny's doing it a different way, which is probably wise. The whole point of the mango is you're trying to find out a way have you managed it? Yeah, this is a seed. Okay, there you go. It's in the middle, right? So Vinus, notice what he's done here. I didn't know what he would do. What he's done is to come up the entire mango with the sole purpose of rejecting the stone. Right? That's what he's doing. Because I can't enjoy the juicy mango until I have found a way of rejecting the stone. Because the stone, I hate it. I don't want it. I want to get rid of it. I want it out because I just want to sit there and enjoy luscious soft fruit. So my first goal is how do I reject the stone? <laughs> And I had a feeling you would probably do that. <laughs> okay? So at the end of the meeting, instead of inviting people to the Lord's Supper, we will invite people to the Lord's Mango, and you'll be able to come and enjoy. Thank you very much, Vinu. But you see, your goal is to I don't want this stone. I want to get rid of it because it's going to ruin my experience of mango. Psalm 118 is talking about that. It's saying, there is a stone. His name is Jesus. There is one who is at the heart of God's purposes and the people of the world don't want him. They didn't, the rulers of Israel didn't want him. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to reject him. In fact, the gospels tell the story of repeated attempts to get rid of this one because like, I just want to be able to enjoy what God is doing in me. And there's this Jesus and he's gumming everything up and I'm going to break my teeth on him if we're not careful. So I need to reject the stone and throw it out. But you know what happens when you reject a mango stone and throw it into the ground? It brings life. It brings life. The mango turns into a tree and there are generations and generations of luscious soft fruit that have come out of that one stone which you rejected because you hated it but it turns out to be the most important part of the mango and future generations of luscious soft fruit are feeding the world not just in India but all around places even right through to Britain because you rejected a stone. It has become the cornerstone. It has become the foundation for the entire tree. And life and goodness is filling the world because of the one that was rejected. That's the Lord Jesus. He's the one. He's the one Jesus is saying. 
And Peter is saying, he's the one you rejected. You tried to get rid of him, but you found when you put the stone in the ground, all that happened was he produced life. And that's the hope of the gospel. And it's boiled down in just that one statement. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By being rejected and cast aside, Jesus became the source of life for everybody since. And both of those surprises, the power of nothing and the power of rejection, turn the world on its head. So he calls the people to respond. He says, repent, therefore, and turn to the Lord and change your thinking. Repent, turn away, admit that you have nothing. Even reject your old life. Repent and turn to the Lord. And as you experience the surprising power of nothing and of rejection, even in your own life, three things will happen. Verse 19, you will experience the blotting out of your sins, forgiveness. Verse 20, you will experience times of refreshing that come from the Lord. Like this, verse 20. And verse 21, you will hasten the return of Christ, the day of restoration when all things will be made right. Rejection leads to glory. Death leads to resurrection. Having nothing, we get to possess everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, this wonderful stone who, though rejected by men, has become the foundation of an entirely new community in which we have been blessed by fruitfulness and life and goodness. Lord, you called our name and we stepped out of that grave. You have not only caused nothing and rejection to lead to life in Jesus' life, you've done it in ours as well. Lord, you have taken what we had nothing and where we were rejected and where we had nothing good to offer and you've turned it into our life and our hope and our redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the gift of the stone that was rejected. And Lord, we do collectively, we repent, we turn to the Lord And we trust you for forgiveness of sins, for times of refreshing, and for the day of restoration that is to come. We thank you and we love you. Amen.